you, uh, you are here for a special day. If you, uh, if you have an email address that's current with our church, then you received an email on Friday. And I just want to address this really quickly, that uh, we just launched some uh, a new feature here at our church. We launched online giving. Um, and I want to talk about that uh, just for a quick moment as we get started today. So if you are a guest with, with us today, uh, just I just want you to know that we don't always start the sermon talking about giving, okay? Uh, but today we've launched something new, and I want to address it. And if you are a guest here with us today, then you just need to know, my name's Jeff Baker. I'm one of the pastors on staff. So why don't you follow this concept with me? If you go to our website, uh, newlifecarney.org, then we've, we've uh, actually released the icon, which is right down here in the lower corner, uh, that just says online giving. If you'll click there, then up will come this screen. Uh, I know that it's a little hard to see maybe from where you're sitting, but it will allow you then to enter in how much you want to give. And so if you click there, you enter it in. This person wants to give $100. Um, and then what you need to do is you have to go over and you have to click on the fund that you want. There's actually three different funds that you can, you can currently give to online. You can tithe, uh, you can give to the, to the building project, and you can also uh, give to missions. So this person wants to select tithe, so boom, we'll select tithe here. Um, and then let's say that you also wanted to give to missions. Then you would click add more, right? Another, another line comes up. You click to add the amount that you want. This person wants to enter in $50. So boom, we enter in the $50 and then they go over and they click on the fund that they want to be a part of, which is missions. You click on missions. Now what it's going to ask you to do is it's going to ask you to enter in your email address. So you enter in your email address and then what I would need you to do is hit continue there. That's going to take you to a whole new screen. So far, super, super simple stuff, uh, very secure. Now, when you do that, though, it's going to ask you to confirm your email. Please go back in, type your email in again, and then hit create the account. So once you type your email in, then hit create account right there. Boom. Click that. Please. Thank you. Follow along with me, people. Um, and um, so... Now, now you've got, now you've got that in there, right? So now, now what you get to do is we zoom in a little bit. It's, you get a chance on the frequency line to pick, is this going to be a one-time gift? You want to give once every week like this? You want to give once every month like this? How often do you want to give? And you have all types of frequency choices to choose from, which literally means you can set it up once. Some people have already done in our beta testing that we've been doing for the last 30 days. Some people have already become reoccurring givers. And they set up the giving that they wanted to give. And now it's happening for the rest of uh, the year for them. So this person wants to pick one time. And then it's going to take you down. It's going to ask you then, what form do you want to give? What type do you want to give? Now, I need to be really clear with this, just for a moment. Uh, You can actually use, in this system, uh, you can use credit cards and debit cards. Um, You can also use your credit, or your, uh, excuse me, your checking account or your savings account. Let me just make a quick statement to you about this. If you choose to give with your credit, your credit card, please be a business-minded individual that understands when they use their business, when they use their credit card, it's used for expenses throughout the month and then they pay it off at the end of the month. I don't ever want anybody in my office coming to me and saying, Pastor, I'm in debt because I've been giving tithe on my credit card. That's a no-no. Don't do that. But if you use your credit card as an expense account, 
and at the end of the month you pay it off, by all means, please do that. But hear my heart on that, please. Uh, the debit card and the credit card are free, free for you to use. They do, however, incur a uh, transaction fee for the church, which is about 2.75%. It's the kind of stuff that when you go out in the business world and you make transactions, they have, they have uh, fees as well. Um, uh, which is some of the reasons why at certain locations they might say if you pay cash, there's a cash price. If you pay, use a credit card, there's a different price. So what I would encourage you to do is, by all means, if you can, set up a checking account, which will require your routing number and your account number, which is what I've done. And then you can also set it up in a savings account, and then um, then the fees are like really, really low. Uh, but if you want to give with a credit card or, uh, or a debit card, you're free to do that. This person is actually picking that option, and they're going to be using their debit card um, because we don't really know who they are, and then they're going to fill in the rest of their information, right? So it's because it's John Doe. We don't know if he knows how to manage his credit. So he's using a debit card. He enters in all of his, inf- his information, and once you've done that, then all you have to do is click give, right? Is that all you have to do? There you go. It's a slow, slow, very slow uh, transition. We'll take care of that. Come back on the second service. It'll be much quicker. Um, so here's the deal. The deal with online giving. Let me give you my heart on it, okay? Um, I, know that, uh, I know that it's a, it's a piece where you're wondering, how do I give online and still make it an act of worship? First thing you need to know about online giving is that if you set up reoccurring giving, then you could set it up so you get paid on the 15th, it's the very first expense that comes out of your account. Um, that's pretty biblical. That to give God out of the first fruits, um, out of the first action of your heart, that the very first thing you'd be doing in giving is giving to God. Um, that's one thing to keep in mind <clears throat> with online giving. Um, some of the other things to keep to keep you know in line with online giving is if you do set up reoccurring giving, then here's here's the temptation you don't have to be faced with. You've ever sat there wondering to yourself, well, this month, man, the, the engine in the car blew up and I got to replace the engine in the car. So I don't even know if I can tithe this month. If you set up reoccurring giving, then what you're basically saying is, God, no matter what happens this month, I'm putting you first. No matter what takes place, we're giving to you first. Whether the house burns down, the car blows up, whatever, we're putting you first. That's something that I want you to consider. Now, the act of worship in giving online. Uh, I got a text message, actually, from a family that's camping this weekend. They got the email on Friday. Then they sent me this message, and they said, Man, I'm so excited about this online giving. This is the this is the coolest thing ever. I'm sitting around the campfire. I just gave my weekly missions offering. I was like, okay, well, good for you. And so th- there, was that, there was that worshipful act, no matter where you're at. The beauty of being able to give online is that you could literally take your smartphone or your tablet device... And at the end of a service, instead of when the baskets are passed, at the end of the service, you could literally come down, you could kneel down at this altar, and you could give to God your tithe. You could give to God your offering. You could come to Him, and you could kneel down right at that very moment, not when the bags were passed, because maybe when the bags were passed, it wasn't convenient. Maybe you were running late, and the bags were passed, and you weren't here. You could literally come down, you could kneel down, or you could sit in your seat, and you could give to God in that moment of solitude and reflection on God, saying, God, thank you for all that you've done for me. So it's a very unique features with online giving that free you up to where the basket that gets passed by you doesn't have to become the end all. Because when that doesn't happen, then you get that awkward moment, don't you? Like, wow, I missed that moment. Uh, I've got this check in my pocket. Now I've got to go find somebody. Who am I going to give it to? 
You don't have to do those types of things anymore if you choose to use some of our online giving tools. So that's just uh, from my pastor's heart to you, creating an opportunity for you to put God first in your finances. So let's continue on with our teaching series, okay? Because we're not going to take a second offering, by the way. With online giving, you don't have to do that. Pass the bags once. Offering could happen throughout the entire worship service. It's kind of unique. Um, so we're going to continue on with our teaching series. We're talking about, obviously, relics. Today, I'm talking about the relic of all relics. It's the holy... Okay, good. Three-fourths of the people knew that. That's good. That's good. There's a lot of famous cups, though, in the world. You do realize that, right? A lot of famous cups. Like, take a look at some of these famous cups. We've got the coffee cup. Okay? That's a good one. Um, we also have one of my favorite ones, probably, the cupcake. That's a famous cupcake, right? And uh, yes, I actually did eat that one, just so you know. I want to make sure you realize that. Uh, we have another famous cup. That's called the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Uh, that's, that's a good cupcake. And you, if you're going to talk about famous cups in the world, you can't leave out Uncle Si's famous teacup. Um, all right? You can't leave that out. Hey, Jack, that's my kind of cup. So... Um, can't leave that. And then right now, my favorite sport of all time is in the playoffs. And so right now they're playing for the Stanley Cup. Right on, right on. So there's a lot of famous cups in the world, but none of them, none of them come close to being like the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail is a cup that was used in the last, or, or believed to be used in the last supper with Jesus and his disciples. This meal was happening during what was called the Passover. The Passover was a meal and also a celebration that took place over a period of time where they celebrated the freedom that God had brought them through Moses out of Egypt and to become their own nation, to become their own people again, the people of God, the Israelites. Now, during this meal, this last supper, there would have been a lot of interaction that would have taken place. There would have been this ceremonial pieces that took place during the meal where um, uh, certain food items would have been eaten at certain moments. There would have been prayers offered at certain moments. And there also would have been four cups of wine that would have been uh, consumed during this time. Now, now, before you think back and you go to yourself, wow, four cups of wine, that's a lot of alcohol these guys are consuming. Well, I want, I want to make sure that you realize we're not talking about big goblets of stuff, all right? We're talking small amounts, symbolic, um, in a memorial, in a worship unto God uh, that was being consumed. And during this time, during this meal that was happening, during one of these cups that of wine that was being celebrated and giving thanks and prayer to God, it's in one of those moments that Jesus steps in and he says to his disciples some very powerful statements that set one cup above all of the other cups. Take a look at what Jesus had to say during this meal in Matthew chapter 26. It says that as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and he said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of what? The many. What Jesus was trying to say is that what's in this cup 
ultimately sets him apart from every other human on this earth, what ultimately is in this cup makes him the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. That's powerful. What was in that cup, breaking of that bread, and that wine that was in the cup that he's referring to as his blood, makes him the ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. It also, he's also saying that what's in this cup establishes me as a new covenant between God and man versus what the old covenant was. The old covenant between God and man required man to come with a, of a sacrifice. They, they, uh, they slayed the sacrifice. They burnt it on the offering. Blood was shed. Flesh was burnt. And it was this offering to God for the forgiveness of sins. You read about it a lot in the Old Testament. A lot of lambs, uh, a lot of doves, a lot of you know, ritual going on. And Jesus is saying, all of the old covenant is coming to an end. And what lives inside of this cup establishes me as a new mediator between God and man. I am going to be laying my life down and my blood is going to be shed on a cross and through the whip and my life will be given so that you can have relationship with God. The cup used in this Passover celebration is the cup that we refer to as, or what's you know, now become trendy to call the Holy Grail. And since the beginning of the church, the church and Christians have been reliving this Last Supper in what we call now communion, and they've been partaking of this meal together with one another as they reflect on all that Christ has done. And that tradition has been happening since the early church all the way to today. In fact, we are going to be taking communion later on in this service. One interesting fact, as a side note, that you might, you might find highly interesting if you didn't know this, but on July 20th of 1969, there was a famous communion that was taken. Now, play your history in your head really quick, and if you're really good, then you're going to know the moment that I'm talking about. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, are landing on the moon, July 20th, 1969. A lot of attention goes to Neil Armstrong for being the man who first puts his foot on the moon. But from a Christ-centered perspective, you might want to just increase your respect for a man called Buzz Aldrin. Because documented in three different places, one of them being in his own book, he says that moments after they, the, the, the lunar, um, uh, what is it called, orbiter or whatever it was, landed on the moon, moments after that, there was a moment of silence that NASA called for. Now, in that moment of silence, Buzz Aldrin, what he really wanted to do was read scripture. But they shut him down from reading scripture over the airways because of a uh, recent lawsuit that NASA was in from orbiting around the moon uh, over a Christmas period and reading out of the book of Genesis. And now they've got this lawsuit against them. So that was shut down. But what Buzz Aldrin did was he brought the elements for communion to the moon. And did you know this, that the very first meal consumed on the moon was a meal in honor and worship to Christ? That communion... Buzz Aldrin took that moment of silence to read from the book of John and to offer a prayer and to take Holy Communion on the moon. I'm super proud of people just like that. That put Christ first. Right? In the middle of all of the hecticness, in the middle of being the first dudes to land on the moon, he goes, I'm going to make the first thing I do in honor of my Savior. It's things like that. Hearts like that that make the Holy Grail the most sought-after relic in all of Christian history. It's full of mystery. It's full of unclaimed facts that go all the way back to the Last Supper. 
And there's a lot of people wanting to know, where is the Holy Grail? Did you realize that right at the beginning of this teaching series, right after we started this series of going, let's go hunt after the relics of Christianity, that in, that on March 31st of 2014, there was this broadcast that came out on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, uh, Fox News, all of the major broadcasting networks in all of the major written news medias, uh, that they said that we found the Holy Grail in Spain. I didn't time that, by the way. All right? I didn't know that was coming out. It just, it just happened to come out. If you didn't catch it, take a look at this, uh, take a look at this video concerning it. Without a doubt, one of the most sought relics in the history of mankind. The quest for the Holy Grail. lecture of Margarita Torres and art historian Jose Manuel Ortega del Rio said this goblet is without a doubt the authentic holy grail from which Jesus Christ drank vino at the Last Supper. Goblet is made of agate, gold, and onyx. Even has some precious stones to boot. And yes, this is definitely in the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade territory of this is not a carpenter's cup. The book Los Reyes del Grial is the end product of a search that began with two Egyptian parchments that the authors found in 2011. According to the parchments, the grail that once belonged to the daughter of Fernando the Great, King of Leon from 1037 to 1065, is missing a distinct fragment making it identical to the original cup of Christ. Up until now, it's been known as the Goblet of the Infanta Doña Uraca and was kept in a very small room on display in the San Isidro Basilica in Leon. Of course, since the book was published, people have been flocking to the basilica to catch a glimpse of the goblet, which has since been moved until a better spot is found to accommodate the masses coming to see it. By the way, that would make this one of a whopping 200 other cups that are claimed to be the actual Holy Grail, something that the historians attempt to clear up in their book. Now, while this may be a new and interesting chapter in the ongoing search for the Holy Grail, for some reason, Christ's holy curly straw has never gotten any attention. Now, why is that? <clears throat> so, um, it, I, I realized that that gentleman spoke quickly, all right? Much faster than even myself, of which I admire that. You get a lot more packed into a one-minute broadcast when you speak that quickly. Um, and it causes people to have to go back and listen to it to see exactly what did the guy say. Um, but one of the things that really stood out to me was the fact that not the holy curly straw or whatever that was. The thing that stood out to me was it's one of a few hundred cups that are believed to be out there. And I just thought you might be interested to know a couple of the things that I found out in my study um, of places that they think the Holy Grail might be. Um, unbeknownst to me, the, uh, the people that live in Aquakeek, Maryland, believe they have the Holy Grail. In Maryland, of all places, in a small little community, um, they believe that uh, back in 1606 to 1607, that uh, aboard a ship that was captained by John Smith, that was going up the Potomac River, was a Jesuit priest. And that this man had ties all the way back to the Knights Templar, and that he had been in charge of the Holy Grail, protecting it uh, throughout England and throughout Europe. And as he was fleeing that area to find a safe place for the Holy Grail, he ends up in Aquakeek, Maryland. I think it helps people just go to Aquakeek, Maryland. Um, there's also the belief that it's on, it's in Nova Scotia, on Oak Island, that in 1795, three boys that were playing have ran across this, uh, what's called the money pit now. It is a pit that goes about a hundred feet deep with a waterfall kind of thing inside of it. And they believe that down in the bottom of it was, you know, treasures and captain's treasures. But now they believe, like all, that the Holy Grail exists at the bottom of the money pit. It just happens to be that so-called legend says that six people have died trying to find it, and evidently one more person has to die before they'll find it. 
It's very interesting to me. Um, it's also, if you watched the movie years ago called The Da Vinci Code, then uh, in that, the legend said that the Holy Grail is in the Rosalind Chaplain in Scotland. Right, and that this chapel was started. The building of this chapel started in 1456. It took 40 years for all the carvings and all the engravings on the facility to be completed. In fact, the man who commissioned the project and paid for it, of which his family evidently still owns it, uh, he died before it was ever done. But there's one pillar in the church that they say the carvings on it are just phenomenal. They have to point to the fact that the Holy Grail was buried inside of this pillar, but because the family still owns it, they won't let anybody uh, dig in it and or discover what its real true meaning is. So... That might be one of the theories. Others believe that maybe it's somewhere in the sewers of Jerusalem, right? That, check this out, this is, this is interesting, all right? That, that Jesus with his disciples, that Jesus somehow may have known where the Ark of the Covenant was hidden, down in the sewers of Jerusalem, and that he showed his disciples, and when the disciples got their hands on the Holy Grail, they decided, well... The uh, Ark of the Covenant's been safe for about 600 years. Maybe we should put the Holy Grail down there with it. And so somewhere down in the sewers of Jerusalem, that's where it is. Now, like I started this series and I told you, I'm going to Jerusalem with our church. um, And we're going to Israel on a tour at the end of January 2015 into February 2015. We're going on a hunt. I'm personally going there to find the the Holy Grail now. So if you want to go with me to find both the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail somewhere in the sewers of Jerusalem to go on a tour that no one's ever gone on before. (laughs) We're going to the Holy Land to uh, dig around in the sewers. So anyways, on a serious note, Please, there's information out at the information center that you could uh, you can still sign up and you can go with us. It's going to be a blast. We got a lot of people. Here's the final one, all right? And then I, I promise we'll get off of all of the conspiracy stuff that absolutely doesn't matter. It's just the intrigue. I'm intriguing. I'm priming your heart right now so that I can deposit truth. Um, the U.S. Uh, Bullion Repository in Fort Knox, Kentucky. Yes, that showed up as the number one place that conspiracy theorists believe that the Holy Grail might exist. That down underneath the bowels of this place, underneath all of the security that exists around it, um, a place that that uh, is super, super secure, so, so secure that there's, there's conspiracies about the security of it, that somewhere down in there is a huge vault that doesn't just hold gold, but there's a room in the vault that's believed, check this out, This is the end-all conspiracy. This is the perfect one. I saved this for the last. It summarizes the entire series. All the relics that we talked about basically are said to be there. The true cross is there. Um, The Holy Grail is supposed to be there. The Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be there. Yes, even with the Indiana Jones stamped on label, do not touch. Um, is down there, evidently, that on the cross, there, are, there is still blood on the cross, and yes, that they've even analyzed the blood, and the blood has shown up, that, it, that the DNA doesn't even show up in a double helix, but it shows up in a triple helix. So, boom, there you go. That's the conspiracies of all conspiracies when it comes to the Relics teaching series. Let's pray. Um, evidently, we know where it all is. It's in Kentucky. You know, you're never going to find the Holy Grail. It's never going to be something that anyone's going to find. Not even sure that after that supper, anybody realized how important that cup really was. 
And if they did, when they went back to the house that they had rented and they were using for this thing and all the plates and all the cups were there, how would they even know that that was the cup that Jesus used anyways? You know, so you're never going to find it. But you can find the power that's behind the cup. The power behind the cup. There's legend of this power. The legend of this power says that those who drink from it are healed. That's legend. That's not biblical. There's other legend that Joseph of Arimathea who wrapped up Jesus and put him in his own tomb that he was arrested shortly thereafterwards and that while he was in prison, the cup sustained him while they provided no food for him. There's also the legend of Indiana Jones. You can't forget that one. Where Indiana Jones finds the, finds this ark, or finds the, excuse me, the, the Holy Grail because his father kept the book on the Holy Grail and all the information he could discover about it. And he finds it in this kind of this cave that turns into this inside temple where the, the Knights Templar are there guarding it. And he finds this old guy who pulls out the sword, if you remember that movie, and he could barely swing the sword because he had been there for so long. But that the theory behind it, the power behind the cup was that if you drank of the cup, it would sustain your life forever and it would make you youthful. Downside, you have to live in the cave for the rest of your life. It's a downer, right? But evidently, his father gets shot in the movie, and so Indiana Jones pours the water from the Holy Grail onto the wound, and it heals the wound. All of that is legend. What's the real power behind the cup? To understand that, what you have to do is you have to come to a place where you believe what the Bible says. If you're going to understand the power that the cup is talking about, you have to first believe what the Bible says. So if you're here today and you're searching after God, you're seeking after God, and you haven't come to a point where you truly believe in God, or that you've given your life to Him, or you're wrestling with, is the Bible accurate or is it not, then you're going to have a hard time with today's sermon. Because today's sermon, the truth of the power of the cup has to be built around God's Word. You have to take the cup and you have to place it at the table at the Last Supper and you have to look at it and say, what was in the cup has power. That the the wine that was in the cup that Jesus referred to as His blood, and He said that anybody who drinks of this will have eternal life, that has power. And that the bread that was there, the bread was just bread, but as He broke it, it symbolized His body that was being broken. And at this moment that the cup refers to is in this act of communion, and what's in the cup has the power. It's not, it's not the cup itself. It's what's in the cup. The cup is just a frail piece that broke somewhere a long time ago. But what's in the cup has the power of the universe in it. It had the power to create life. It had the power to throw the stars into the place where they belong. It had the power to put the earth where it belongs. It had the power to ignite the sun when he said, let there be light. It had the same power to put you on this earth. The power inside of the cup has the power to transform the universe. Including your life. Until you come to believe that fact. Until you come to that reasoning in your heart. The power of the cup is meaningless. But if you have come to that place, then you're going to love what Jesus had to say in John chapter 6. He said, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Pause for a second. Manna in the wilderness. They're coming up out of Egypt. They're moving through the desert. They get locked in the desert for 40 years out of their own rebellion, but God gives them manna from heaven. 
But they all died. It says in the Bible, a whole generation that came out of Egypt died. A new generation came alive. They're the ones that entered into the promised land. He goes, anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die, referring to himself. He goes, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. Just think of yourself in an audience, and Jesus is saying these words, and you're hearing these words for the very first time. And this is the bread which I will offer so that the world may live. Is my flesh. Wow. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, being Jesus, and you drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But... Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last days. Time out. I I just need to be really super clear with you. Jesus is not suggesting that you drink human blood and that you eat human flesh. Back to the sermon. It's impossible, by the way. There wouldn't be enough of him to go around. As disgusting as that sounds. There wouldn't be enough blood for all of humanity. There wouldn't be enough flesh for all of humanity. So let's just get super clear right now, right off the bat. There's no possible way on this planet that Jesus was referring to any sort of a physical, you know, consumption of him. So therefore, he's referring to a spiritual consumption of him in the heart where real life lives, where eternal life can live on. So there's two critical things that Jesus is driving home here that I want to make sure that you get super clear. And that is that the blood of Christ holds the power of eternal life. And that you can't get eternal life anywhere else other than consuming or drinking the blood of Christ. Meaning, consume Him or to Give yourself completely to him to take in Jesus and the flesh and to flush out you. To take in more of Jesus and let you, the wicked, old, sinful you, be flushed out. He was not even talking about every time you take communion. He's talking about if you give your life to me and you let me come into your hearts, I will begin to transform you. And it's only through me. Remember what Jesus said. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's, that's what Jesus was saying. And, with, and Jesus is doing this with joy, by the way. There's not agony in his heart. Take a look at what Ephesians chapter 1 has to say. It says that he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of, a, of his son and, and forgave our sins. He being God. God is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom through the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. You need to know today eternal life was purchased for you. It's in your hands of whether you're going to consume Christ, whether you're going to become more like him and let your life, you know, uh, be lived in a way that looks like Christ. The second thing, though, that Jesus is really driving home for us here and understanding what the true power of the cup is, is that the blood of Christ marks you uh, for resurrection when Christ comes back for his church. That the blood of Christ, it's in our hearts, it's in our lives. And when God, it's as if God looks down from heaven and he goes, yeah, 
That person's accepted me. Yeah, that person believes in me. Yeah, that person knows me. Why? It's as if he looks at you through the veil of the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross, the ultimate sacrifice, so that you can have relationship with God, so that your sins can be forgiven. It's as if your sins are covered up by a blood of Christ that God chooses to not be able to see through. And he looks at you and he goes, you're perfectly and wonderfully made in my image because you've given your life to Christ. He's your Lord and he is your leader. And because of that, when Christ comes back for his church, he's going, I'm looking for those people. And those people are going with me and spending eternity with me in heaven. Now that should give you hope. The power of the cup gives hope beyond this life. The power of the cup you know, gives you the, the, uh, the idea, the concept that we can be united with Christ. That we don't have to be separated from Christ, but we can be with Christ forever. Look at what Ephesians 2, 13 has to say about that. It says, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him. What? Through the blood of Christ. You've been brought near to him. You've been united with Christ. Why? Because of Christ's death and his resurrection. Because of him becoming the ultimate sacrifice. There is no other way. You can't be good enough. You can't live your life, you know, trying to live to the letter of the law. You can't be the best person on your block and then try to somehow claim to God, God, that's why I deserve eternal life. Because of how good I've lived on this earth. God says there's only one way to get eternal life. There's only one way to spend eternity with me in heaven that I would resurrect you even if you die in a grave. And that is through the blood of Christ. So put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in the, in, the, in the Savior of your soul who went to the cross, gave his life for you, and rose again on the third day. That's the power of the cup. So then, how can you personally experience the true power of the cup today? Well, there's a few things. One, we're going to take communion today. That's one way to experience the power of the cup in our lives is to partake of those elements. And I'll talk to you about that in just a minute. But there are a few things that stand out in what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, that I think you're probably going to want to draw your attention to if you want to experience the power of the cup. It says, Paul says, For I passed on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks He gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this and and to remember me. Excuse me. In the same way, he took the cup of the wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Three things. Three things that um, they don't require the act of communion, but three things that are in this passage that you can implement in your life right now to start experiencing the power that God was talking about that exists in that cup. First thing is this. He drives home twice. Remember me. In verse 23 and 25. Remember me. What's he saying there? He's saying, first off, remember the bread. I want you to remember the bread. Why? Why remember the bread? Because he goes, that's my broken body. My body's going to be broken for you. I want you to remember that. 
I want you to go back and I want you to reflect on it because I never want you to forget the sacrifice that I gave for you. The second thing he goes, I want you to remember um, that I am the wine or that I am that blood. I want you to remember that. Why? Because he's saying my blood's going to be shed on the cross as a, as a sacrifice for you. And because my blood is shed, I'm going to be the one that builds that covenant between you and God now. That you can have relationship with God through Christ. And so basically what he's saying is go back to some of the relics that we talked about. I want you to go back and I want you to visually picture with me the whip. And Jesus is going, I want you to remember that I took those stripes for you. I want you to visually picture me giving my life on the cross. I want you to remember that I put my body on the cross, that it was broken, and that the blood was shed for you. And that as often as you do that, remember me or give thanks to me. Which also means that he wants you to go back and remember the state of the sinful self that you were in when Jesus came and he rescued you out of it, when he became your leader and your Lord. That one of the ways to experience the power of the cup, if you will, to experience experience the power of Christ is to never forget where you came from. Never forget the sinful state that you came from. And always, always give thanks to God for that. Don't ever think to yourself that you were good enough that you got yourself out of that pit that you were in. But always remember that even in spite of your sin, God sent His Son to give His life for you. That's powerful. The second thing, though, that he says in here is, he goes, announce the Lord's death. He says that in verse 26. Announce the Lord's death. What, What does he really mean by that? He's meaning to tell or to proclaim or to shout or to celebrate what Jesus did for you. Meaning, go out into the community and celebrate, proclaim, announce how Jesus has rescued you from your old sinful self. Go out into the community and tell your friends and your family how Jesus forgave you of your sin. Go out into the community and tell people, proclaim it to them, that Jesus is the Lord and the leader of your life. Did you know that when we partake of communion, that we're announcing the power of what God's done in our lives? That when we look at each other partaking of the communion, that we can identify, you know, that you've given your life to Christ. Because today when we partake of communion, I'm telling you, Jesus is saying, this is for those who have a reverence and an awe as they remember me. This is for those who are able to announce what I've done in them. That when we partake of communion, we're literally broadcasting to one another. We're encouraging each other. Jesus lives in me and he lives in you. And there's some fellowship that happens there. The third thing that he says, though, is this. He says, expect his return. In verse 26, he goes, until he comes again. You do these things in remembrance, announcing the Lord. You do this until he comes again. So expect his return, which puts, it puts hope in you for Christ that you're not living just for what you can gain in this world. You're not living just for what you can acquire in this world. That there's life beyond this world. That you're looking in great anticipation for the day that you will be with Christ forever. Yeah. You're looking for the day with great anticipation and excitement. For the day that I'll be with Christ forever. You know one unique thing about the power of the cup and communion? Is that if you look at those three things that that Jesus is challenging us to do. If we want to experience its true power. Regardless of whether we're taking communion or not. But when we do partake of communion. It causes us to remember the past of 
who God is and what God's done in our lives, to celebrate who he is right now, and then to look to the future, expecting his return in an excitement and anticipation for the fact that he is coming again. And when you partake of communion, those three elements are there staring you in the face, going, is Jesus your Lord of yesterday, today, and forever? Well, I want you to grab the elements, the bread and the cup with me. Why don't you just grab those things? Kind of set the table for you on what the power of communion is. Set the table on what the power of the cup and the, the broken bread and what the, what the, uh, the juice in this, in this case represents. But can I just have your attention for a moment? Yeah, you can go ahead. You can rip that back and just hang on to it for a moment. We'll partake of these things together in just a second. I want you to do something with me, though. I want you to reflect back with me on this entire series, okay? This entire series has been a series to experience the power of God in your life. We've looked at relic after relic, and then we dug for its real power in God's Word, and we unveiled it, and we said, you can experience God's power in one way or the other. We said that you can experience the power of God being the king of your life when we talked about the crown. We said that you could experience the power of God's unshakable, solid word in the manuscripts in week two. We said that you can experience the presence of God that will transform your life when we talked about in week three, the ark. We also said that you can experience the power of healing in week four when we talked about the stripes and the whip that bore those stripes. And in week five, we talked about how through the cross... You can be saved. And then in week six, last week on Easter Sunday, as we talked about the relic of the shroud, we said that you can experience the risen Christ in your life. And you can put your hope in him that if he rose from the dead, you too one day will be with him forever. As we partake of communion today together, I want you to reflect back on those weeks. And in what way do you need the power of God to be at work in your life today? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray over this, the element of, of the bread first. And as I pray over that, I want you to consider, in what way do I need to experience the power of God in my life today? Would you just come before God and just ask Him, as you remember, and as you announce the Lord, being the Lord of lords and the King of kings, as you look forward to His return, would you just bring to Him that? In what way do you need the power of God to be at work in your life? So, Father, we stop for a moment. Before we partake of these elements, Lord, we we reflect back, we remember back on your broken body that was broken at the whipping stone, and it was broke on the cross. That your physical body was broke so that we could have eternal life. Lord, we thank you for that. We declare that you are our Lord and our Savior. We're so thankful for the sacrifice that you gave your broken body that we might have eternal life. And as we partake of this, this piece of bread that represents your broken body, but we're also reflecting back on how powerful you really are. And we're just offering a simple prayer to you that, that we need to experience your power in our life in one way or another as we honor and we respect you in partaking of this bread, your broken body, for our lives. Would you partake of the bread together?
like Paul wrote to us, declaring the moment that Jesus had with his disciples. He said in the same way that Jesus had taken the cup. And he passed it around and he said, guys, now this cup is different than any other cup. That in this cup, yes, it might be wine in that cup, but this cup represents my blood that's going to be shed for you on the cross. And that through the shedding of this blood, not only can your sins be forgiven today, but that you can be rest assured that I'm coming for you again in the future. And then, with great hope in their hearts, they partook of the cup. And with great hope in your hearts, would you just join me in partaking of this cup? Jesus with great thankfulness in our hearts we do take time to remember you we do take time to look back at all that you've done we do take time to announce the fact that Lord you gave your life for us we're so thankful for that but Lord we also take time to announce the fact that we're excited about your return we're looking forward to it God thank you for all that you've done for all that you're doing And Lord, thank you for the fact that you're going to do even greater things in the future. So we pray that with a prayer of faith. We pray that with great, with great faith in our hearts. Trusting all that you are for all that you've done. Let's worship him today. In Jesus' name. Amen.